and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stop answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Prior to launching cult stationery brand Papier in 2015, Tamor Atatechi started his business journey as an antiques dealer in Portobello Road Market. During his time at university, Tamor then co-founded student news outlet The Tab, which is where his love for building brands began. Combining a love for art, design and beautiful stationery with a desire to create a brand that would define its category from day one, Papier was born. Six years later, Papier has surpassed one million customers and has some seriously exciting projects in the pipeline, including further product development and expansion into the US to reach even more paper people. Tamor sat down with me to discuss the advantages and disadvantages of being a solo founder, retaining company culture and combating communication issues as a business grows. We spoke about understanding when and where to raise capital and accepting that not everybody will buy into your vision. Tamor explained why Papier was never going to be just a side hustle and how sustainability was part of the business model from day one. We talked about defining your own success and why the best piece of advice he's ever received is to stop talking about it and just get on with that. With that in mind, I loved chatting to Tamor about his business journey, which definitely hasn't been linear. He's such a compelling founder and I really believe in his mission. I really hope you do too. I'd love to jump straight in and ask if you mind telling me a bit more about what you were doing before Papier and then how the idea actually came about. Yeah, so I I started out uh, as an antiques dealer on the Portobello Road. That was kind of my first foray into into anything commercial or art related um overall and i did that for a year i had a stall um bought and sold uh antiques from all parts of the world but primarily from iran and india and uh, i then went on to study that was kind of where a lot of my passion for art and design came from and i went on to study history of art university um there i set up a brand or a student publication called the tab which is 
something that most people above the age of kind of uh, 20 don't really know but if you are in your if you're 18 19 20 you will you will probably know it's it ended up it is now kind of one of the biggest uh news and student kind of publications online um both in the uk and and, and in the us so it's kind of slightly random but that was where i also developed a real love for brand building and building something that consumers in particular in particular love um and in a slightly weird potted history i went on to get a proper job after university and uh not mess around with student news and joined a company called bain as a strategy consultant um and that was where i learned i think how to fix and run and help grow a business uh, and it was at bain that i developed the business plan and the idea for papier uh, which uh, which is which has obviously been my life for about six years now. Quite different pursuits there. Do you think that it was important for you to do different things before you ended up at the business you are now? Was that exposure to other industries quite integral to you learning different things about what is now your business? Yeah, definitely. I think not necessarily by design. I didn't do all those things knowing I'd end up running and building a stationary business but in many different ways each one of those have played a part I think on the stall selling is is kind of where I learned to sell I think it was by far the the best MBA you can have is running a market stall and also selling stories as well I think when you're selling art or antiques it's you're not selling a piece of metal you're selling a, a piece of history and so that kind of storytelling came from there and then you know, running running the tab. I mean, that's a lot of the relationships I've built with um, people, like our developers, uh, and just starting to build a brand and a business kind of came from there as well. So, yeah, each of the different elements played a part in in helping me establish a platform from which I could build Papier. A lot of the questions that I get asked by people who want to start companies is about the practical steps that people need to take you obviously were entrepreneurial in your pursuits prior to this business what what were some of the actual practical steps um and can you tell me a little bit more about the process from deciding this was the idea and the, and the category and then actually making that a viable business reality yeah for, for me i think everyone has a slightly different approach but for me I started by kind of basic way of building a business plan. And actually, the way I did that is by building a pitch deck. So I effectively started by creating a pitch deck for something that didn't exist. I find that I've always found that a really helpful way of actually starting to understand the story of what you're trying to tell. I think in stories, I think if you build brands, you have to think in, in stories. And so that was that was practically what I did i started basically making slides um but beyond that the other practical steps i took i I started having kind of countless coffees that i was clearly kind of begging people to have with me uh, and that's across suppliers potential partners artists um big big kind of incumbents companies in the space that were already at scale and i think when you are starting out there's you know you you the, the generosity of people is actually more than than you think and a lot of people will give a bit of their time so that was another practical step i took was just try and have as many conversations as i could with people that uh, were in the industry yeah i mean it's good advice i think a lot of people overlook 
overlook the kind of rudimentary steps for sure. We hear now, particularly from modern founders, about passion and how they turned a hobby or a side hustle into a job. Were you passionate about stationery or did you see an opportunity to take a category that you thought needed something different and make an impact on that? Which, which side of that did you fall on? I, I had both. Um, I, think, I think you can't build a business or at least you can build a business in a category you're not passionate about, but it, it will make the journey less interesting and less exciting. Um, and, and, you know, it does, that doesn't mean to say you have to wake up and live and breathe that product or that category, but you certainly have to have a close affinity with it. And, it, you know, I've always been a stationary user and I've always been someone who's been passionate about owning my own stationary, right, from when I was a student um, and, and beyond. And, you know, everywhere I've traveled, I've picked, I've picked up stationary and collected it. And, there's a community of, as we call them, paper people who kind of really identify and understand what it's like to love stationery and get a bit of a thrill when you walk into a stationery shop. So the answer is, yeah, I was absolutely. And, and a lot of it boils down to art and design. Again, stationery is kind of, it, they are pieces of art, they're works on paper. At least that's the way we see it when we, when we create it. So I was passionate, still am passionate about it. But at the same time, what really aroused my interest as well was just how much of an opportunity there was to disrupt what was a pretty tired market um, at the time. And were you looking for that? Were you sort of dissatisfied with what you were, do- what you were doing and, and actively looking for, for industries or did it sort of come upon you as something that just seemed very obvious? I was looking um, and I think in some ways uh, once your radar is on and you are actively open and seeking areas they, they come to you quicker or at least like you know you you attract some of these opportunities and um at the time I was at Bain I was I was keen to to move on and to build a brand myself I think I developed the itch to build businesses early on probably at the point at which I set something up at university and you start to get that um that endorphin hit of what happens when a product that you've built or a or anything that you've done suddenly becomes something that everyone uses, the virality of it. And that's one of the reasons I love consumer businesses, because you see the impact on everyday people. Uh, so I was actively you know, looking out for an opportunity. And in some ways, it was kind of staring at me in the face, given how much I was an avid user of stationery at the time as well. You launched the business in 2015. I'm interested in what your vision was in terms of long term because some people start businesses and go I'm going to have a go I'm going to see where I get to I'd like to sell some products I've got to figure out supply chain all that kind of stuff and other people go this is a five-year plan I know I need to raise money in six months I want to do a seed these like what was your uh vision in terms of what you were going to do once you knew this was the business this was the category yeah I I I was always clear that what I was doing wasn't a side hustle it wasn't let's give it a go and sell product um but it was let's try and build a global category defining brand and so right from the outset scale was important to me uh, and it was it was it was making sure that the mission was clear that in order to be category defining we do need to disrupt that market and own a significant proportion of the market share and basically capture the 
the minds of paper people all around the world and make sure that they're aware of who we are and what we do. So that was clear. And therefore, as a result of that, raising capital was clear as well from the outset. What we needed to do to raise our initial capital and beyond that as well, um, that was always part of the plan. Launching in 2015, how difficult has it been to keep up with social media and the demands of social media because there's new channels all over the place how do you work out from a marketing and a social perspective where you show up yeah it's 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 certainly hard i mean we it's very noisy in terms of the amount of content that's out there in general i think one of our one of my kind of principles is to is to not get too uh, distracted or anxious about the fact that there are 10 channels and thousands of different opportunities to produce content but to actually try and be focused i think it's not about making sure you have a big voice on every single channel out there but to identify the channels that the community that you seek to speak with are active on Uh, and if they are active on tiktok that's where you need to be but just because tiktok is a thing doesn't mean that every single brand needs to do everything they can. And and the risk with doing that is you've spread very thin and produce content that's not very relevant and not very good on any channel. Um, and in general, I think there is, there's just too much content in the world at the moment anyway. Uh, and brands are in general trying too much to just spew out stuff, whether it's on TikTok or whether it's on Instagram. And I think almost trying to separate that rush and anxiety around what do we do because there's all this channel but just working out what you want to say and to whom and then working out what's the right channel to do that is the better way of doing it otherwise otherwise the challenge is impossible to you know really be kind of super active relevant and on every single channel as it evolves I think it's it's not the right um, approach. And I guess an interesting tension for you as a business, right? Because you're trying to actively get people offline to uh, sort of pen notes to, to each other in in the real world. Yeah, although although the the it goes back to like the nature of the communication. I think um, you know our view is that for certain modes of communication, nothing beats pen to paper. Nothing beats uh, beats that. But for other things digital is perfect um you know we're not as an office we're not all writing letters to one another internally we are active users of slack and email and zoom and everything but we think that there is an important place for paper and the tactility uh of it and analog modes of thinking and communicating and note-taking and i think most of our customers agree with us on that that actually in in some ways the proliferation of digital actually makes that analog mode even more valuable and even more um, special when you receive it the business now is a multi-million pound business lots of young entrepreneurs lots of people starting businesses uh, cite hiring as a very difficult part of the process most people have made a wrong hire along the way most people have had some sort of drama at some point. Did you know when you started what hires you needed to make immediately? What was that like for you? And who were the first few people that you brought into the business? For us, the first people were people to build our website, people to market the business and people to help design our product. So effectively tech, marketing and design. And we had the ability to hire 
multiple people because we raised capital. So that's not necessarily the case for everyone. I think if you're bootstrapping a business early on, you may only have the ability to hire one person if that. And with limited budgets, sometimes that ends up being a junior person or an intern. Um, there's no there's no right or wrong. I mean, the only thing I, I think is is typically generalists early and then as you as the business grows becomes more and more specialists is is the way i've always seen it and so whether you are hiring someone in marketing in tech um the more of a generalist they role the hats they can play the, the the better suited and the more they'll enjoy the early days of a startup and then conversely when the business grows sometimes the perennial generalists find it really tough when the business becomes kind of big and you, you everyone starts to feel a slightly pigeonholed and hang on i used to run all elements of x and y and now i'm doing just one so i do think having a good kind of base of generalism is always really helpful in the early stages of a business you're uh, as far as i'm aware a solo founder so you don't have business partners is it difficult as a solo founder i mean hard question given that you don't have a, a comparison but with the tab you are a co-founder is it difficult? Do you find it easy to make decisions more quickly or do you long for someone to tag in to help with some of the more challenging days? Yeah, it's both. I mean, it's, it's certainly, it can be quite lonely. I mean, I've, I have been a co-founder and, a sole, and obviously at Papier, I'm, I'm a sole founder, but as a sole founder, it can be lonely. You've, you've only really got yourself to kind of confide in and also yourself to really celebrate. Um, I say that, you know, I mean, obviously you have your team, but there is there is something that is different with, with a co-founder who's kind of gone through that experience with you but but on the flip side you've kind of highlighted some of the things that I think make it actually quite advantageous and you know to make good deci- decisions requires speed and clarity of thinking and clarity of vision and there's no better recipe for that than just one single kind of brain on it as opposed to two the flip side again to that is there's a risk that comes with it that you become kind of not open to other ideas. So I think there are huge advantages with being a self founder and I and I and I strongly, you know, anyone who's thinking about it, I would definitely say don't worry about it. Um, but there are ways to make sure you you can uh, get some of the benefits of a co-founder. And that's by making your team behave like co-founders but and by treating them like co-founders. If you ask your peers their genuine advice and you take their advice then they will feel like co-founders and, and and you'll be able to celebrate and confide in them and trust them in that way uh, and equally to be open to other ideas as well just because you're a sole founder and have the end decision doesn't mean you kind of have to play a dictator role in in any business either do you have mentors do you have other people outside the business that you know, aren't co-founders, but perhaps have a little, a few more years on you in terms of ex- business experience that you've been able to lean on. I don't. I don't have kind of formal mentors. I kind of think that the title, the word, is is become slightly overused, and people kind of think something of it. I mean, I have plenty of people that I talk to day to day, and people that I go to for advice. If I was to ask them, do you see yourself as a mentor to me? I think that they'd say no. And I and but so I think the answer to that is yes. I have a I have a a fantastic network network of people that I've built over time through the business who I can ask for advice. And that that includes people who have, as you say, been through this are a few years ahead, um, but equally people who are starting out as well. And people who maybe are a year or two in um, that I can learn from too, because they're, they're seeing things from a slightly different vantage point as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's like the equivalent of being asked to be on a committee. Everyone likes to tell people they work on a committee, but actually then when they're asked to do some work, everyone becomes very shy. It's kind of the same with the mentor idea, isn't it? It's like a bit of a bit of a title now. I want to ask you about culture. It's a bit of a buzzword in businesses. People hiring healthy culture. We hear a lot of teardowns with big public companies like uh, Bumble and high-profile companies like Glossier and other other businesses, I guess, Facebook, etc., being obvious ones. Have you found it difficult to retain a sense of that culture, that kind of family, treating people like co-founders, creating that human connection as you've scaled and grown as a business? Because it is very easy to do when there's five of you and you can all go for lunch and you're in the same room. But have there been challenges with keeping and retaining that as the business has grown? Yeah, it, it, I think the answer is yes, it's it's difficult and it's hard, but I think it should be difficult and hard. And if it feels really easy, you're probably not doing it. So I think for us, culture is, 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 has been a critical factor to why the business has been successful. Um, and you're right, it is harder to do it at, at, at scale. Uh, and it does require more people to be more focused on it. And it's not just me, but the teams that you build that just think about and just work on culture uh, as well. But I think there are ways to do it. I think we we still um, at, at Papier pride ourselves on it feeling like a family. Uh, we never, I never describe it as a family um, per se, because I think it's really disingenuous to describe businesses as families. Families don't don't kind of hire and fire people. Um, but actually, it needs to feel like a family, and it needs to operate as a team. And we we sit down every Tuesday for a family lunch in the office and we've always built a space that can accommodate that and yes that's hard at scale because when you're 100 people you need a big space but you just have to prioritize that I think you've got to kind of really make sure that things like that don't fall by the wayside and just because it is harder you don't say well let's just forget that now we're too big for that culture retention being an one we just sort of talked about but what are some of the other challenges that come with scaling a business and how have you overcome them beyond culture i think uh communication becomes harder at scale with a lot of people i think you you may, you you talked about the five people around the table it's 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 an accurate analogy of what happens early on and it's the easiest way of making sure that everyone is well informed and has all the context and everything they need because they are all around a table i remember when i was when that was me, I mean, we didn't have a meeting room. So if I was taking a call with a supplier or an investor, everyone could hear me. In some ways, that was really useful because they would hear me pitch. They would hear me talk to suppliers and negotiate. So actually, at that point, you have almost the pinnacle of maximum kind of engagement and collaboration. Everyone knows what everyone's doing just by virtue of the fact that everyone's constantly around. As the business grows, that becomes harder and harder. And naturally, you build in layers and you have to build in layers in order for there to be some sense of structure in a business. Otherwise, it, it, it can't operate. And what becomes hard is making sure that what's in my head and what I'm thinking and what I think we should be doing gets distributed by way of communication right across the business in a way that everyone feels that they understand. Uh, that is, I think, a, 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 a big challenge that any business, I think, it, that's, that scaling is, it will have. Was there a notable or memorable point at which you realized your job had changed from startup founder to a scaling 
business whereby you had the right people in the right roles and you could kind of not I guess not sit back and watch because that sounds incredibly passive but there's a there's a shift right you're a startup CEO you're doing everything you're replacing the loo roll you're you know and as you say once you have 100 people you've got to hire a cleaner like there's there's that at every level is there an is there a notable point at which you went yeah okay this is this is a proper business I don't I don't think there was a specific point but certainly I mean, if anything, yeah, you, you basically start out doing everything and you over time gradually try and make yourself redundant, I think is the job of any good CEO. Um, and I think the point at which you really realize that is when you realize that nothing depends on you, but the success of the business is kind of part of what what makes it happen. So it's not about making stuff happen, but it's about making sure that those things are doing well and that the culture of the business it's almost it, it becomes it becomes a slightly different job uh and i think there is a realization when actually you know you you realize that uh that your role has changed in that way and that you your, your role is not to make sure that a delivery happens on time but your role is to make sure that you have a engaged team that believes in the mission so it's a very it's a slightly different uh, approach to coming into work every day what are some of the most valuable investments that you've made to scale the business? I think always, um, you know, people is always the most important investment and in the training we put into people. Um, uh, and, and not just the, the, the training, but the time. I think the most valuable asset that any startup has is their time. Uh, and that was a learning for me that actually, um, you know, every day or every minute you spend on one thing is a minute that you haven't spent somewhere else. And I think even though people is the biggest use of my time, it's the biggest use of most of our time, and we, we spend a lot of time coaching, nurturing, developing our teams, it's by far um, the biggest investment and the best investment um, that, we, that we make day to day. You've raised money for the business. Um, you did a £12 million raise from a series of uh, different institutions, including Jamjar, uh, Felix, Finance and raising money is often quite scary for businesses and it's always described as being exhausting and painful. I think there's obviously lots of stages to it. There's a complexity around some of the language, the idea of what you're actually giving away, the idea of terminology around vesting shares and when to get out, taking the right money understanding what the deal is so you know you're not being given money it's people are expecting a return what was your experience before you got into the fundraising space had you did you have contacts in in that space or was it were you going in a little bit blind no I had I I knew people who'd gone through the journey and I knew people who had raised capital from venture capital funds uh, and so I could draw on their experience and ask them a bit about it. And I think that's always hugely valuable. And I think it's easier now than it was. There are there are just more, there is more capital and there are more founders and there are more entrepreneurs and more startups being built and the networks are growing. Um, but, I, but I think that it, it is important. As you say, it's quite impenetrable and there's a lot of uh, jargon and there's a lot that you kind of need to try and break through and understand. And I certainly... Uh, got a lot of that through people that I knew who'd gone through it. You mentioned earlier that you understood when and where you needed to raise money because that was what was in your business plan in terms of how you could grow. 
was it straightforward when you first went out to raise? Was it, did you speak to a hundred different people or what was the process like? Uh, yeah, I think it's always, a, especially on that starting point where you don't have a business and all you have is a business plan and an idea and a vision. In some ways it's, it's, that makes it hard. It also makes it easy because there's not much, there's not much that an investor can really do. There's nothing to, to there's no time to spend. There's no business to look at. Uh, so, you've only got yourself and your pitch really and that kind of makes it somewhat easy it makes it um uh, but at the same time you yeah you do have to speak to a lot of people because not everyone is going to buy into that vision not everyone will want to share that vision with you as well i think investors need to need to need to think that this is something they'll, they'll enjoy being a part of and so yeah I, I think you know i would have pitched to at least 30 40 different people and you have a handful of angel investors early on that um if you're lucky, that will put some money in, uh, and as you say, expect a ret- expect a return, but be- become part of that story. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a founder with a hypothesis, isn't it? Right at the beginning. I mean, I'd be interested to know if someone is currently pitching for investment and getting a lot of a lot of closed doors and a lot of no's. Is there a point at which you have to go back to the drawing board and be like, people, these people are biting on this, or is it just? the more people you talk to, collate the feedback and keep going back to them. I think there is a point where you may decide that it's not the right moment to go out and raise capital. Um, and and I don't think that raising capital should be the main job of the founder and CEO all throughout the, his, the, 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 the kind of growth of a business. So I think one of the ways I'd almost limit it is how, long, how much time is it taking? I think, you know, you want it to be a fairly quick process Uh, and if the timing is right then it will be a quick process having said that uh, you should absolutely use feedback that you get as you're going through any fundraising process to kind of change and turn and iterate on the story that you're telling and the way you look at the business sometimes that feedback might might take you back to the drawing board uh, and might mean that you've got to kind of take another look at how you're building and growing the business but um but yeah it it, it should it should certainly be something that doesn't completely overtake your job as a as 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 the founder and the chief executive of the business and running the business uh, it, otherwise it has a real risk of becoming a distraction if someone doesn't have any any ends any contacts what advice would you give are there are there books podcasts forums communities is it about just reaching out to people is there any advice you have about how to begin those conversations one thing i would say is i i wouldn't underestimate the value of cold messaging um especially if it's honest it's targeted and it's real i think you know doing mail blast to a thousand people with some kind of template doesn't work but reaching out to people that you may not know, you may have no connection to whatsoever, but you you really want to speak to them about something is worth doing. Um, and I think, as I said at the beginning, you, people will be surprised at how much time busy founders are willing to give. And I certainly do give a lot of my time to it because most founders have been in that place and remember reaching out cold and saying, hey, look, I only need 15 minutes of your time and buy your coffee. I just want to understand X and Y, or I just want to see what you think of a potential business idea. Um, not all of them will be respond. Will, you'll get a response, but it is certainly worth doing. Um, and I think it can go a long way. 
Yeah, it's good advice. Sustainability is a prerequisite now of any of any modern brand. There's a lot of heat on businesses who aren't towing the line with it. We've seen it particularly in the fashion industry more recently with where it ends up in terms of landfill, but also just the supply chain and the treatment of the people in that as well. Undoubtedly, sustainability is an important part of your business. Has that been baked in from day one? Has some of it happened retroactively? Can you talk to me a bit more about the the business pressure to be sustainable and how you guys actually incorporate that into the business today? So sustainability was part of what we were doing from day one. And I think what's actually changed is how much more we are talking about it. Um, uh, And I think the way the reason we are the most sustainable stationary brand and business um, in the UK and the US by virtue of the fact that we're the only stationary business that produces all our products on demand locally. Um, if you buy a papier product in New York or in California, there'll be two different manufacturers, printers that will be shipping those products to you and therefore reducing the amount of time and carbon that is going into both production and shipping the product to you. At the same time, we're not producing products that people don't need. I think, you know, we we spoke about kind of rental businesses as well, but one of the reasons those businesses exist is because there's there's too much product in the world. And the reason there's too much product in the world is every single retailer is producing more than they need and are using discounts to try and force it down people's throats. And as a result, we all just have too much stuff. So, our on-demand model means we will only produce what the customer needs and we won't use discounting in order to kind of push that. So that was always part of our DNA. And over time, we've consistently refined that. We've we've adapted the materials that we use. We don't use any plastic in our packaging. We only use papers that are from sustainable forests and forests that are growing. So actually by pa- buying papier, you're actually contributing to growth in forestry um, globally. And so, as I said, I think it's always been part of our DNA, but but we, we need to talk about it more. And the reason we need to talk about it more is because consumers are more interested in it. Um, and consumers want to understand more about where their products come from, how much of an impact it's having on the planet. Um, and, and so that's been a shift for us. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a lot of journalists in the last year or so have become so much more vocal about it, particularly when they haven't had the luxury of products going into a mail room. So they've had deliveries to, the, to their homes. Many of them have been posting the packaging versus what they actually received and being horrified. And I think it's definitely a really important conversation. And there's a lot of people slow to the party with it. But I do think that I imagine it's a lot easier to start your business with that as a really key part rather than try and track back after a few years and and implement it. Definitely. I mean, everything is easier at the start when you start from a blank canvas. And the the more ingrained something is, the harder it is to unwind and to to rewire. So, yeah, I think a lot of businesses now, as you say, for them, it's it's a prerequisite. Um, for for older businesses, it's harder, and they're having to kind of unwind and re re-engineer the value chain and the supply chain overall. Um, so yeah, absolutely. It, for us, it was always part of our, our our mission and kind of what why we were producing our products the way we were. Um, it's just now that's gone from being important to being critical to being able to be a relevant brand. I want to read you something. So Papier sold 11,000 organization stationery in the last week and is on track to sell over 400,000 pieces of stationery during the back to school 
uh, work period as people go back to the office. Um, you've got thousands and thousands of people on the waiting list to get diaries for next year. It's You're up over 300% as an increase in sales. The business is hugely successful and growing. Do you ever take time to enjoy succeeding in milestones or do you is it just a relentless pursuit of tick we've done that what's next yeah it's it's hard we're not good i think most high growth businesses would say that we're not that good at pausing and stopping and reflecting and we we have to be much more conscious about it we're doing a lot more to actually um sometimes pause and reflect and the reason we struggle to pause and reflect is because when growth is the way it is um you know the success becomes dated quite quickly and all of a sudden you're reaching a new milestone and breaking a new record and uh, going into a new area. So for me, I think for me, actually, the moments where you kind of pause and reflect is not necessarily the obvious ones. They're usually ones internally, whether they're social events with the team where you can actually just pause and relax a little bit and reflect on you know where you've got to overall. There's some milestones that we hit around. You know, we, we, we've just surpassed a million customers uh, at Papier and you kind of have a kind of pinch moment where you suddenly realize you've uh, you know you've you've served a million uh people but yeah you're 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 right that you you end up moving on quite quickly uh and that's just because you know that's everyone's got a it's got a mission to accomplish and I think only at that point can you actually pause and reflect what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given about building a business I think actually just advice that has told me to just get on with it and just do it. I think I, uh, I've spoken to people who I was certainly one of those people that was constantly talking about setting up a business and thinking about it and talking about different plans. And I think um, someone said that, you know, people should just stop talking about it and get on with it. Um, and they were absolutely right. I, I think people do a lot to dissuade themselves they do a lot to ask others to dissuade them from taking a plunge. Um, and the odds are always stacked against you. And if you were a sensible, logical person, you would never set up a business uh, as it doesn't make sense on paper. But some of the best things in life, you know, are, are not necessarily ones that just completely make sense from a probability perspective and you just have to go for it and take that plunge so that's the best advice I've been given it's the advice I give everyone with with that in mind how do you make sure that you keep learning do you listen to podcasts do you read books do you talk to mates who are doing interesting things what's your process for learning yeah I do all of the above and I think that is important I do find it difficult sometimes because when that is your work you kind of don't want to only consume content that is about what you're doing and I actually think that the most valuable learning is is outside of the fields that you're in reading not a business guide or a kind of how to build business book but actually just reading about history or about art history or even reading a novel you know we all underestimate how much you can learn from art and fiction as well uh, even if it just triggers thoughts and triggers memories uh, as well and for me it serves a purpose of also allowing you to enjoy it I think it can be very very stressful to just consume and listen to business podcasts and it certainly will make you a very very dull dinner party guest as well so I think there's a there's a fair dose of just not overdoing reading Harvard business review articles all the time 
What's your definition of success? Do you think there's now a bit of a standard for young entrepreneurs to be overnight successes and posting about having lunches on social media and I guess to your point kind of playing business a bit? Yeah, I think it's really important to define success for yourself because there is no universal benchmark. I do think there is a risk of only thinking, for example, is success, you know, raising a hundred million dollar equity round? Um, you know, not necessarily, but if you, you know, kind of are stuck on LinkedIn or TechCrunch all day, you'll think that that is a marker of success. Um, so I think it's very important to before and 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 something I would have done more consciously before is identify what does success mean? Is success actually, you know, getting to a certain amount of scale, having a very happy and good quality of life and not going beyond that? Because if that is your marker of success, then that's equally valid. Um, so I think there, I think that's something that's super important. But for me, success was always intrinsically linked with scale in the brand. And, and one of the benefits of having a mission from the outset is you have an objective for success, and that is you can succeed in that mission or not. And because our mission is to build a category-defining brand for paper people all over the world, it is one that's intrinsically linked to scale. That only works if we can get to a point where we are the largest share player in stationery in, in multiple territories. So that is a huge mission. That means success is always, you know, kind of a, a far away uh, ideal, and that can be that can be um, that can be tiring. But that's how I define success. That's what for me means that we have succeeded. It's not raising money. Um, those are all means to getting to that end successful point faster. Um, but that's not to say that that is the objective for anybody's business when it comes to being successful, I think. Do you have a good relationship with social media? Do you use it, obviously, for the business, but do you use it personally? I do. I do use it personally. Um, and I think, you know, I think like most people, I probably use it a bit too much and I'd rather use it a bit less. Um, but I tend to use it, for me, it's quite, an, it's quite an important way that I can stay creative. It's where I continue to kind of look out for new talent within the business when it comes to partnering with artists, designers, illustrators. So it serves an important purpose as well. And through things like Twitter, it's where I get a lot of my information from, where I do a lot of my learning. So it's I have a good relationship with it. But, you know, I think we could all probably spend a bit less time on it. The podcast is called The Busyness Podcast. Busyness and being busy has become in many ways akin to success for a lot of people. We're all expected to make more money, have more children, have more friends, go out more. Obviously, routine is important in that in the day. If you had an extra hour in the day, what would you use it for? The good news is it wouldn't be work. I think it would be it would be to read and it would be to read anything other than stuff to do with work. I think as much as I claim and I like to say that I, I do, and I do do a fair bit of reading outside, I it's not as much as I would have liked. And I, you know, and maybe I'll add to that going to more museums. I mean, I, I've, the reason I'm, I haven't been is actually not because I've had an extra hours because they've all been shut. But now that they're open, I think having the time to be able to do things and, and enjoy culture more broadly is something that I um, wish I could do and would do more. And it is just an excuse. We all have an extra hour in our day that we end up doing, being quite inefficient with and probably spending it 
um, scrolling on our phones a bit too much. And lastly, what's next? Tell me what we can expect from from the business and for you in the next sort of six to 12 months. Yeah, so, so internationally scaling is one of our kind of biggest strategic priorities. And the US is the is front of, and focus of that. About a third of Papier customers are currently in the US and shopping in the US. And by the end of the year, that'll be kind of closer to half. So what's next is we are opening an office in New York. Um, we're going to be putting quite a few of our team out there um, by this time next year. Kind of about 20% of the organization will be based out in the States. And so we'll be certainly spending a lot more time building the brand out there um, and serving paper people all across the states. Aside from that, we're also doing a lot of new product development. I think for us to be a category-defining stationary brand, we want to serve more of the elements of stationary that we know consumers love. So you can certainly expect to see much more than just a papier notebook and diary, but expect to see everything from pens, highlighters, and everything else you'd expect in a stationary emporium. Thank you so much for taking your precious extra hour from the day that I've stolen from you. But it's so many interesting learnings. And I think anyone at any stage of their business journey has got a lot to learn from what you've said today. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share it with me. Um, And no doubt the uh, many listeners will be hugely appreciative too. So thank you. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you.